0: Hi, this is Panel Beater, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine, and wellbeing. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Therapy's Facebook page.
1: Hello, everyone. It's Dr. G Spot here, and welcome to Radio Therapy. I'm delighted to be with you today, filling in for Dr. Nick. And what a week it has been. Unprecedented seems like an understatement. But the good news is that we're here maintaining our social distance. So sit back, relax and keep us company. And I've always wanted to do this on radiotherapy, but a special special shout out to my good friends and family in South Australia who tune into every single show. Thank you so much for your support. And keeping me in line here in the studio, the man who can manage all the knobs and buttons and intelligent conversation all at the same time. Welcome, Panel Beta.
0: Uh, Good morning. Good to see you.
1: Thank you so much for, for joining me, Panel Beta. In today's show, Dr Nick will be making a special guest appearance via phone to provide us with a very important update on COVID-19. And Prudence Deer will also follow on via phone with advice on how we can better support each other through these challenging times. And then just to change gears slightly, we will be discussing one of the more hidden psychiatric disorders, namely Body Dysmorphic Disorder, and joined by the delightful Dr. Fran Bailars of Monash University. We've got a great show coming your way, but first, some news.
2: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au.
1: A new research study has found that listening to 30 minutes of music a day significantly reduces the risk of further heart problems after having a heart attack. And this research is being presented this very weekend at the American College of Cardiology's 69th Annual Scientific Session and Expo, and I believe that's being conducted online. So according to the study's lead author, uh, Professor Mitrovic um, of the University of Belgrade, There have been quite a few studies analysing the effect of music on heart conditions and in this study there were 350 people who'd experienced a heart attack and had post-infarction angina, that's a chest pain that follows having a heart attack and half of these people received the usual music treatment while the other half, um, sorry, half of these people received usual treatment and half got the music therapy 30 minutes a day. And uh, what actually happened was that um, after seven years, so these 350 people were followed up after seven years, very impressive, um, that the music therapy group had one third less anxiety and one quarter less angina pain than the regular treatment group based on their scores. And this also led to 18% less heart failure, 20 through 23% fewer heart attacks, and 20% less need of coronary artery bypass after surgery. So... Uh, while we're sort of in this era of COVID-19, I think listening to music is something we can all do no matter where we are um, in the world, if we're locked down or not. So not only is it going to have good effects on your heart and your mental health. So some good news there. And I think listening to radiotherapy will also surely improve your health too. And I believe we now have... um, on the line prudence dear who is our resident researcher scientist and psychotherapist and she's been reading up on the latest escapades of clive palmer Uh, prudence dear can you tell us a bit more
3: um yeah look couldn't help um missing out or couldn't help not seeing the um that Clive Palmer, uh, you know, the man we think has probably more dollars than cents, has been promoting um, a drug called uh, hydroxychloroquine as a cure for coronavirus. It's a bit of alliteration for us. Um, And he's actually been saying, Mr Palmer's been saying that he will fund one million doses of this drug for Australians. And I guess, okay, the question has to come up. So, hang on, what is hydroxychloroquine? And it's actually its close relative chloroquine. Now, these are um, well-established anti-malarial drugs, and they've been around for quite a while, so we know quite a lot about them. And they're also actually extensively used in the treatment of some autoimmune diseases. So they're very important for a lot of people, and they're life-saving drugs, of course, because malaria is a major killer around the world. But I guess I was wondering, well, how did Clive stumble on some sort of magic cure here? And um, if we do a little bit of research, we find, actually, there's been a small drug trial in France that has suggested that chloroquine can be a treatment for covid Um, I guess the thing is that the trial was very small and it's attracted a great deal of uh, criticism. I mean, not least, actually, that that, um, in the reports of the results, 26 people, I hope I'm still on. All right, 26 people were, um, uh, were randomized to the treatment group, but they only actually report on the results of 20 of them. And uh, one of those that's missing actually died. So I don't know. I think one dying out of 26 gives us a 4% mortality, which I guess isn't, isn't a cure at all. So the key thing here, I think, is that this is a drug that, um, that has actually significant side effects, can affect the heart quite severely, and can also cause, uh, you know, uh, vision problems and blindness. So taking um, this drug without medical supervision is absolutely dangerous. And secondly, the the global supplies, like of anything, are are limited. And for Australia or anybody in Australia to attempt to buy and stockpile chloroquine, I I think, quite honestly, is unethical and immoral. So there we go. Don't go there for now.
1: Well, thank you so much, Prudence, dear, for that important update. And we're looking forward to you having us join us again later in the show. So don't go anywhere if that's okay.
3: I'm OK. I will Thank,
1: Thank you, you very much. And now we've got the delightful Dr. Dr Nick joining us, making a special guest appearance. I was going to say, Dr Nick, you really can't have a week off, can you?
4: <laughs> oh. Thanks, G-Spot, and wonderful to hear your voice. And panel B, to, uh, good to hear yours as well. And sorry to be stuck well away from the studio rather than joining you there.
1: Well, it's lovely to have you on the line, nonetheless. And you're going to give us a, um, a crucial update on what's been happening in the world of COVID-19. Please take it away.
4: Yeah, sure. And before I do, I just want to follow up on what Prudence was saying there because this yes, is such, a, it's such an important story, this one. Um, and it was actually the Trumpster himself who who's got uh, this one as well because he went national talking about chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine. And caused a major run on world stocks and for people not to be able to get access to it, including the terribly unfortunate thing that a guy down in Phoenix, Arizona, uh, took some chloroquine phosphate, which is a cleaning product for fish tanks, and it killed him. Um so we know that this um, this drug has been widely promoted by the wrong people. Uh, it is absolutely crucial. People don't get the wrong end of the stick about this. There is absolutely no proof at all that this drug is any use in COVID-19. No one should be taking it. It's actually quite a dangerous drug. It has a very narrow what's called therapeutic window. Uh, the dose that works is not that different from the dose that can kill you. And it's extremely dangerous potentially for children. Uh, so no one should be going anywhere near hydroxy chloroquine or chloroquine.
1: My goodness, Dr. Nick. Yes, we should never take medical advice from uh, Mr. Trump, it would seem. Um, And you're right, that was a a really big story this week. Can you tell us what's happening um, in the world context of COVID-19?
4: Sure. Well, I I've just come back from the UK, which is why I'm in quarantine. I'm on day five at the moment, uh, managing not to go completely insane. Bunkers, <laughs> my study with I've got screens and internets and phones and and the dogs. Um, so they they're helping keep me sane. My wife is keeping away from me, <laughs> so I'm in the upstairs. She's in the downstairs. We're lucky to have enough social distance uh, that she can stay safe from me. Um, it was, it was interesting being in the UK because I arrived there when this was kind of developing at the time when I arrived. Uh, everybody was out at the restaurants, people were in pubs. Uh, there was no problem getting food. Toilet rolls, of course, were a little scarce. By the, by the time I left, the whole place was locked down and schools had been shut, pubs had been shut. I mean, for England to close the pubs, that really says something.
1: My goodness, uh, everyone walking around stone cold sober
4: they didn't know what to do with themselves extraordinarily. What they did was go out to the park. The parks were absolutely jam-packed. There was a complaint from uh, Wales that the uh, walking tracks up to the top of Snowdon were too congested that nobody could keep one and a half metres apart. Oh
1: my goodness, that is so rare in Snowdon. It speaks to the unprecedented times we're in.
4: Then coming back uh, was the most surreal experience because sitting in Manchester Airport, which was... Um, everything pretty much was shut. But I was surrounded by passengers wearing full personal protective equipment. I've never seen anything like My it. People gosh. wearing, yes, people wearing the the caps and the goggles and masks and full gowns and booties and gloves and disinfecting every seat they went anywhere and this sort of thing. And they, <laughs> they wore them. They wore the full PPE on the entire flight home. I was surrounded by people in in PPE, I felt completely safe. I was I was, was, was
1: going to say, did you feel underdressed?
4: Well, I, there was me and one other Aussie on the flight. True Aussie that he was, he was in his stubbies and his thongs. <laughs> but I thought that was rather marvellous when the, half the other passengers were in PPE and the Aussie was there in his shorts and his T-shirt.
1: <laughs> and I hope you had thongs on as well.
4: He certainly did. And so, of course, arrived back. And a couple of things that were interesting, I was handed a leaflet on the aeroplane about self-isolation that was two weeks out of date. So it was dated the 3rd of March. I thought, wow, that's not great. Arrived at the airport, no temperature check, no one actually doing anything other than handing you a piece of paper to fill in to say how you felt. Um, which, of course, just relies on honesty. Um, and then we just marched through the whole quarantine procedure, and I jumped on the sky bus just as normal, because back then, prior to midnight last night, um, if you were in self-quarantine, you just took yourself home. And so this slightly mad process that someone who was deemed at high risk, i.e. myself, um, was allowed to get on public transport in the sky bus, touch things, sneeze at people, do whatever I liked, until I got home.
1: This is really concerning, Dr Nick, as you said, it is relying on people um, being aware of their own, I suppose, symptoms, and we know that a lot of people are walking around asymptomatic even, and then there was sort of no checks or balances when you got back into Melbourne.
4: That's certainly what it felt like, and of course that has changed as of midnight last night, and... um there's, there's been a lot of argument, of course, you'd be aware of this, about how hard does one go, how quickly, um, and the difference between the more authoritarian regimes in countries like Korea and China and Singapore and so on. Um, and they've, they've really followed the mantra of go hard, go early. Uh, some other countries have, have been more gradual and the United States, I think, is already paying the price, not going hard enough. Um, here in Australia, we've had a bit of a mixed bag. Uh, my understanding is that the benefits of closing schools are relatively modest compared to the social distancing and closing of other public facilities. Um, but this is the sort of thing where no one knows exactly what the right thing to do is. And here in Australia, I think we haven't done it too too badly. Um, but um, obviously, we're just beginning to see the numbers rise and. It will be crucial over these next two weeks to see whether we have actually flattened the curve or not.
1: Yes, absolutely. We're all going to be following that, Dr Nick. And you did mention the USA there and you've you've talked about UK. Have you heard anything out of the USA?
4: Well, the USA, of course, um, is now leading the world, (laughs) another dubious title that the USA has. Uh, As of today, um, there are 121,000 cases confirmed in the USA. So it's now 40,000 ahead of China. And uh, um, it's it's probably just starting to take off in the USA. And the concern there is that they haven't closed things down rapidly enough. And uh, I'm very fearful that we're going to see really appalling um, effects in the USA in these next two weeks we of course we talk a lot about europe and the westernized countries my major major concern is what happens in Places like, As we're hearing already in India, uh, in the refugee camps in places like Bangladesh, we've got over a million refugees with almost no access to the capacity to social distance, let alone any proper medical care. What's going to happen in some of the poor African countries? Uh, we're not getting data because no one's doing any real testing there. Um, so I fear we've got some much, much worse news yet to come.
1: Uh, Unfortunately, I agree, Dr Nick, about uh, the poorer countries being even more hit than the US, UK and and here. Um, It is very concerning, as you said, and um, a lot of uh, confusing messages at the moment, which makes it hard for people to feel like they know what they have to do.
4: And you're right about confusing messages. This is something I've found very perplexing. I mean, I'm not a complete internet clutch. Uh, I'm not an IT expert, but here I am, I'm self-isolating, I'm required to, so I went online because I wanted to find out, am I allowed to take the dogs to the park? Simple question. Um, And after an hour of going through multiple, multiple websites, it was impossible to get an answer to that very simple question. Um, And uh, on the issues here of course is there's so much information out on the web and anything that was written three days ago is out of date but it's still there so people who are trying to find out information are being inundated with stuff that's either wrong or out of date.
1: I agree Dr Nick it's really hard and then there's also um, all of the sort of misinformation on, on social media as well um, which is how the you know the chloroquine really took off. I think uh, so. It is tricky, and even for a, a medical expert like yourself, just wanting to find out the answer to a simple question is challenging.
4: Uh, and I was I was listening to the story of the um, a guy from Israel who's been. Uh, did you see this one about who's been in a retreat for ten days, a silent retreat in Tasmania? Um, so he wandered off to go and meditate and switch off the phone and so on for 10 days. Uh, came back yesterday, switched on his phone to find 200 messages that <laughs> discovered that this pandemic has taken over the world. Um, and it, that must be a relatively rare experience, but it reminded me back in 1982, I went from Australia back to the UK. Now, this is, of course, pre mobile phones, pre internet. Uh, and I went back via Russia and the Trans Siberian Railway. So I spent two and a half weeks traveling through Russia uh, in 1982, completely cut off from media about the Western world, arrived at the port to get on the boat to go back to the UK, bought a newspaper and discovered my country was at war with Argentina.
1: My goodness.
4: And I had exactly the same sort of experience, I suspect. This Israeli guy has come out of his retreat because I'd had no information at all. Uh, and suddenly the whole world had turned upside down. Now, of course, that was a, a fairly small blip in the Atlantic Ocean, um, lots of consequences, but nothing like what we're experiencing at the moment.
1: Indeed, Dr. Nick, I bet that Israeli uh, guy was wishing he didn't come out of his retreat so soon. Uh, Yes,
4: well, I hope his sense of tranquility lasts a little longer than (laughs) that. might have done after he went through those 200 messages. Yeah, Um, probably by
1: message two or three, his anxiety was
4: back. A couple of things that I think are changing um, in the... And so let's, let's look at, see if we dig out a few small positives somewhere. Um, one of the things we've struggled with and we haven't done enough on Australia, if you listen to people like Sharon Lewin, who's one of the head honchos at the Doherty Institute, a wonderful woman who knows everything about COVID. Um, and she says we should be testing, testing, testing. And we simply haven't had the capacity to do enough testing. It's been very, very difficult. Uh, Even in my own practice, the very first person that we tested, um, when we got permission to do the swab, we then rang up the lab and said, well, how do we get the swab to you? And they said, oh, you have to pay for the courier. Oh, goodness. (laughs) And that, that was in the early days. But it shows you how ramshackle it was to begin with. Even now, I've just had a message from my workplace saying three swabs have got lost uh, in between somewhere where we've taken them and getting to the lab. And we simply cannot test enough people. Um, and so here's another concern that I have, that um, we've got a whole uh, policy based on uh, getting international arrivals shut off into quarantine because, as Scott Morrison keeps saying, uh, the majority of cases that we found are in people who are returned travellers. Well, um, Scott, we're only allowed to test people who who are returned travellers, how are we going to find the locally transmitted cases? We, we haven't been testing for them. Um, so, so this is potentially to be a major flaw in the argument. We haven't been allowed to do enough testing on people who might have the virus locally transmitted because for a long time the only criteria to allow testing has been that someone has uh, been a return traveller.
1: Mm, I, yes, everything you're saying there, Dr Nick, uh, is concerning, but I've just got a, a text message through from one of our loyal listeners, she'll love this shout out, she's saying that Daniel Andrews's press conferences are a good source of information, or at least she's finding them to be so, so perhaps people could be tuning into that, and I also...
4: Yes, want- I, yeah. Sorry, I I agree that they're good, but here's another example of confusion. Yesterday morning, Daniel Andrews' press conference said that all arrivals uh, in Melbourne will be quarantined. Um, He didn't say in the press conference what was said in the press reliefs, but that was international arrivals. Uh, And I had a daughter thinking about coming back from Tasmania, then considering that she was going to be quarantined for two weeks um, because of what he said at the press conference. So it's crucial we get our messaging right here. Mm.
1: Very good point there, Dr. Nick, and if any of our illustrious leaders are listening into radiotherapy, I bet they are, um, (laughs) clear communication would be key. I just wanted to remind our listeners of the coronavirus hotline here in Victoria, if you think you're unwell or someone else is, please call one 675 398 That's one 675 398 Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Nick. We really appreciated your insights
4: this morning. Lovely to talk to you, G-Spot. Look after yourself. Stay well away from Panel B. He's a lovely man, but I want one and a half metres between the two of you, please.
1: Oh, believe me, it's more than one and a half, Dr Nick. <laughs> 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 Thank you again, and you take care too.
2: Thank
4: you. Thanks. Bye.
2: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how.
1: Now we have Prudence Dear joining us on the phone yet again. Thank you so much for coming back, Prudence Dear.
3: That's fine. (laughs) I'm loving it. Great
1: show. I'm glad you're enjoying it. And so while we might learn a lot from this experience, what should we be doing here and now to help each other out to get through these tricky times?
3: Yeah, that's a really good question, G-Spot. And I mean, yes, we do want to end up a bit smarter, and perhaps we can, actually. I think, you know, it's interesting, of course, that Dr Nick was sort of talking about, you know, what uh, what his quarantine is, uh, is like, and he sort of explained that he was kind of surrounded by screens and all sorts of things, and his dogs, and I think that is really, really important. I mean, um, bearing in mind that his quarantine is, what, 14 days, but actually this is going to go on a lot longer for 14 days. It's so important, I think, for us to maintain our social connections, and our sort of sense of purpose, um, largely, if not always, like without going outside our homes. Um, and you know social connections come in many forms don 't they some of us uh, for some of us that 's revolved around our jobs and our work colleagues, and we 're now separated from them either because we don 't have a job anymore or we 're working from home, so it can be quite isolating um, and maybe for many people it 's family visits for example and also there was an article I think in the age this morning just talking about grandparents and how grandparents cannot sort of really interact with their grandchildren anymore and not just from a point of view of um, uh, of uh you know child care but, uh, you know, just sort of everyday kind of interactions. For other people, it's been sports. I've been talking to people, I mean, who would be at the sports clubs uh, every weekend, and uh, everything's shut down, um, and the special interest groups, for example. And and um, as Nick was saying, like, where can we walk the dog? And um, in some respects, you know, walking the dog's become a bit of a solitary exercise. Um, we love them dearly, but they're, I mean, they're great listeners, but they're not very good conversationists. So... You know, we we need to sort of make sure that we kind of keep those connections, and I'm I'm a firm believer, really, in that we need to stay connected. We need to find positive, sorts of inspirational things, like great songs from Christina um, <laughs> that, give us, that give us a sense of uh, you know things are not all doom and gloom. Um, there's an awful lot of social media which is a very powerful in- medium for us but um, you know, there are so many depressing if you like um, and gloomy um, features and misinformation that we really need to be careful what we expose ourselves to. So I mean the internet is important I think uh, most of us have got the internet these days but not all so I'm best bearing that in mind when I talk Talk about some of this stuff what I'm seeing actually um, is this massive sort of growth of, of video conferencing um, what can you do with video conferencing it used to be a business sort of thing where we'd have we'd have business meetings but now we're talking to our, our kids and our, uh, you know our family and our parents and so on and um, in sort of various sort of situations, and and it's becoming quite common now to to set up family get-togethers via video conference. You don't leave home, they don't leave home, but we can all have dinner together. Easter's coming up, of course, in the not too distant future, and you know that's a great opportunity actually to invite all your family and friends to to join on a uh, Sunday lunch or something. And um, if everybody's got video conferencing, uh, they can sit around in the comfort of their own home but have those sort of conversations. Some people are actually doing that sort of as a regular thing, like a Saturday night uh, dinner party, um, a virtual dinner party. You can even have, um, you can even all try to do the same recipe, and then you can talk about how well or not it came out. Um, eating and drinking obviously is a good thing but not everybody wants to do that so you know there's a thing called Netflix party now so you can watch videos and you can choose a video and invite all your friends to come uh, to join you virtually and you can have text chats while it's going on so that you can communicate so you can kind of share the the experience um, and what I have noticed, and I think it's great, is that obviously so many kind of arts and mm-hmm. music and theatre events have been cancelled. But keep an eye out because many sort of, you know, things like the, uh, I think the Melbourne Symphony and Chamber Orchestras and so on are still streaming live uh, performances. So you can you can still go to a, a great performance, even though you can't leave your home. So these are things that are really kind of, especially around the arts, I think gives you a very positive um, interaction uh, with things that are important to you. So it's, it's you know keep a, over. say so keep an eye out for some of those things because there's definitely a lot happening. It's a big shift in how we're using the internet. Um, are, I was I've, just
1: going to say, Prudence, dear, these are such great ideas that I hadn't even considered. Oh, um, I've been seeing people. quite a bit on Twitter of people having Friday night drinks. Um, yeah. Not that I'm recommending getting through this COVID-19 no. abusing substances by any stretch, but I think it's important oh. socialization. And um, I've also seen some people doing book clubs um, via, yes. uh, via social media and online forums as well.
3: Yeah, look, I think you could do anything. You could do crochet and knitting, you know. I mean, you could just <laughs> sit down and, and do something, whatever it is that you like and is, is your, you know, is, is the thing that gives you some, you know, sense of purpose, some enjoyment, some relaxation and a bit of escapism as well. Um, now, I mean, in the social media sense as well, I've seen you know, a big increase or become much more aware of, of, for example, things like Facebook groups that have a very positive messaging um, and only positive commentary. So there's, I mean, there's a big one called the Kindness Pandemic, mm. so you can search for that on Facebook. It's got hundreds of thousands of members, and I think the rule basically is you can only post something really positive, and it has to be, It does, it is about the, the COVID situation, but people are describing interactions they've had in the supermarket or where somebody has done some random act of kindness. Um, And uh, they posted the details of it. So it's really giving us a a sense of seeing, you know, the good in humanity on a daily basis um, rather than seeing all that sort of negativity. And it gives us ideas about things that we can do to be helpful, which includes just, you know, finding ways to check up on our neighbors, which is something that we've, you know, traditionally often done in times of,
0: of crisis. Hey, Prudence. It's Panel Beater here. Good to hear Thank you. you. <laughs> Lovely to hear you, Panel Beater. I'm. Um, I'm. One of the things that I'm. Is it. Is enjoying the right word? I'm not sure that it is, but let's go with that. One one of the things that I'm enjoying in regards to social media is this, um, you know, complete 180 with it. On radiotherapy over time, we've spoken about how it's um, potentially really detrimental to mental health. And here we are singing its praises, this great opportunity to, uh, to engage and connect, you know.
3: Yeah.
0: Um, oh, totally. Um, and and I, I think that's really interesting. You know, there's a lot of conversations going around the place that things will never be the same, even when this is over, so to speak. Um, yeah. Things will never be Maybe social media won't ever be the same. Um, oh. G-Spot's got a great conversation coming up with uh, Francesca Belez, uh later on and about body dysmorphia and social media yeah. and the connection with body image and understanding of oneself you know, has really been intertwined over a long time. I wonder if potentially social media can shift on this from a community point of view.
3: Well, I'd like to think so. I mean, I'm really looking forward to that next segment as well. I think the idea, that's right, that, that so, so much like Instagram in particular, I suppose we'll blame that one, um, you know, <laughs> is all about presenting, you know, your your best self, the best picture of yourself, and, uh, and that there's sort of these sort of pseudo-standards of, of um, you know, of presentation that, that you're expected to achieve. So, look, yeah, I think, um, you know, the fact that that, that we can, find really positive and you know much broader healthier things to do with our social media has got to play out. i hope we are able to retain them once we get back to whatever the new normal the new normal is um so let's yeah let's look to that that uh,
0: Um, that dopamine hit that we used to get by getting a like or a forward or something like that is is hopefully being replaced by a dopamine hit we get by seeing the face of uh, a loved one or somebody who we'd otherwise want to be seeing in person
3: Absolutely. You know, we're probably going to be able to, as you say, kind of kind of maintain some of these ways of connecting uh, and really using um, our social media and our internet in a very kind of positive way about human interaction and about, you know, and, and, and kind of really opening us up. We know that we can be talking to our rallies all around the world. But I mean, I guess how often do we do that? Perhaps, you know, this will encourage us in this situation how to, one, make those connections and secondly, to maintain them. Afterwards, and I think that's another important thing. I just wanted to sort of get in before we kind of deep run out of time, and that is, you know, we've spoken about connection. That's important. Positive sorts of um, experiences that are really important to our mental health. And I think one of the other great tools to use to to. Um, combat anxiety and depression is action. You know, one thing is to sit in your chair all day, but how do you take action? Um, and that's very difficult now. But I think you know there are again a, a plethora of groups, be they political groups, local charities, other sorts of support services working with various parts of the community, and there are plenty of kind of discussion groups and Facebook groups around those that allow you to. To kind of feel that you're getting involved and that you have some, you know, you're doing something valuable. It might mean at some point, if you've still got any money left, um, you know, making donations to your favorite whether it's a a health charity, whether it's an animal welfare charity. Don't forget, you know, we're still, a lot of people are still recovering from the bushfires. You know, that's kind of, uh, rather unfortunately, just uh, that's kind of disappeared off the radar. But, you know, there's a lot of recovery work still going on. So, again, there's a great opportunity to get involved in things that give you a sense of contributing and supporting your fellow men and women.
1: I agree, Prudence, dear. Those pro social behaviours will give you a real boost to your own mental health in these tricky times.
3: Absolutely. And don't forget, as I said, not all of us have the internet. So we could, I was thinking, I suppose we could go back to writing letters, but you've got to go down, if you've got some stamps, I suppose, you can take a stroll down to the post box and post a letter. Um, The postal services are still working, but also, I mean, most people do have phones and texts, and so actually, you know, just actually using the old-fashioned methods of phoning a relative up or phoning a friend up, touching base, seeing how they're going, having a bit of a chat. You know, sharing the sharing the stocks of, uh, you know, how many sheets of toilet roll you've got left or whatever, you know. I'm sure there's some fun things that we can find to do using the most simple of kind of technologies and interactions.
1: So agreed, Prudence dear. Perhaps we can even offer to a neighbour to post their letter for them or give them a toilet roll. That might be Absolutely. our social activity.
3: Yes, as simple as that. simple as that, geez.
1: Thank you so much for those excellent tips, Prudence dear. They're much appreciated, and we really um, thank you for joining us via phone
2: today.
3: It's been my pleasure. I'm going to listen to the rest of the show.
2: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how.
1: And I'm very excited to bring to you our next guest, Dr. Francesca Baylars, joining us via phone. Now, Fran completed her doctorate in clinical psychology at Swinburne University in 2019, and her thesis explored visual processing in body dysmorphic disorder and piloting a novel intervention program. She works as a psychologist at Mind Body Well, and she also has the unfortunate circumstance of working with me, Dr. G Spot, at the Monash Alfred Psychiatry Research Centre at Monash University. Welcome to the show, Fran.
5: Hello, Dr. G Spot and Panel Beater. Thank you for that lovely introduction.
1: <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Now a really hard hitting question first up, Fran. What's it like working with me? At, it actually, is. don't answer that. <laughs> you can tell me that in private at our uh, HR session. Um, Fine. So, Fran, can you tell us first up just what is body dysmorphic disorder?
5: Sure. So, body dysmorphic disorder, or BDD, is a psychiatric disorder characterized by a preoccupation with perceived flaws or defects in one's physical appearance. So, these perceived flaws typically focus on specific facial or body features. They're not really weight or shape as a whole, um, and these concerns aren't really um, typically observable or appear obvious to other people. So someone with BDD might be preoccupied with their nose, facial skin, genitals, muscularity, etc. and in response to these appearance, concerns um, often engage in obsessive or compulsive behaviours in an attempt to try and change or fix or hide or camouflage these appearance concerns. And kind of at the extreme end, that can get into, I guess, quite intense sort of cosmetic surgery. Mm.
1: And why do you think it is, Fran, that say compared to eating disorders, why don't we know as much about BDD?
5: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. I was actually double-checking the prevalence rates. Um, and BDD is about 1.9% of the general population, which is wow. significantly higher than a lot of, um, I guess, the more common body image disorders that we hear about, such as anorexia nervosa. Um, so I think, you know, part of the difference relates to how this can be represented in the media, and just relatively little is known about it. Um, and I think, you know, a really big portion of this comes down to the stigma around BDD. You know, I think we're making quite significant changes in stigma around mental health in general. But for BDD, this still feels quite um, strong and disruptive, So there's lots of misconceptions that BDD is just vanity or narcissism or kind of a lifestyle change that people are choosing. Um, But that's not the case at all, and it is a really serious psychiatric disorder. I was
1: going to ask, Fran, sorry to interrupt, I I was thinking, um, I wonder if people are thinking BDD is just that kind of more normative like body dissatisfaction like I'm like ah, I don't like my nose like do you think that might be why people dismiss BDD and and how do you think it differs from those more normative concerns? Yeah
5: I think that. there can be a lot of sort of general confusion about what is maybe a quote-unquote normal level of dissatisfaction with appearance, um, but this is quite different to a clinical diagnosis of BDD. So I tend to think about body image concerns on a continuum, um, so maybe at the left end, starting with that really positive, like I kind of call it the "wizzo," feeling good as hell end, and then we can range across um, sort of body neutral, maybe not caring so much about how your appearance affects how you think about yourself and then we get into that more sort of negative and dissatisfied end at the right and BDD is really kind of at the very extreme end of that and that often relates to I guess the disorder being really quite significantly disruptive in terms of daily activities and having a really high level of distress associated with it. So people with BDD you know are much more likely to be unemployed, have difficulty building relationships, and a lot of those really kind of debilitating, I guess, side effects of the disorder, which feels quite different to sort of, I guess, the quote-unquote normal level of body satisfaction that we kind of have given our current society.
1: I agree. Very important point there, Fran, of quote-unquote normal. (laughs) And I wanted to ask, in these times of COVID-19, how do you think it's affecting people with BDD?
5: Yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot lately in terms of kind of eating disorders and body image in more general, but more specifically for people with BDD, I am quite concerned about sort of this shift to online systems, um, in particular using webcams and video conferencing as kind of the main way to communicate um, for work, for example. So I guess in people with BDD, we might see these two different patterns, So some people might be more kind of avoidant of their appearance and I guess take really extreme measures to avoid looking at any sort of reflection or image of themselves, whereas other people can be more kind of on the checking side of things and so might you know, really repeatedly check their appearance by spending hours in front of the mirror, taking hundreds of selfies, or perhaps getting quite distracted and distressed when they have to view themselves on this sort of webcam. So I think this could be a really strange time for people in general, obviously, but more specifically with people who are experiencing these really intense appearance concerns.
1: mm and- Like considering this is such a, I suppose, a hidden disorder, Fran, what made you decide to research it in the first place?
5: Yeah I guess I'd always kind of been interested in I guess how people present themselves and that um, kind of was strengthened when one of my friends developed an eating disorder and I just really wanted to be able to help. Um, So I started researching body image more generally and then kind of just started learning about BDD. Um, I guess hadn't really heard much about it and was quite Shots, I guess, to learn some of the really debilitating consequences of the disorder and how little kind of research and general information that is around it. I kind of fell into it that way, and also in terms of cl- clinical work, I really liked that you know this field of body image also involves quite a strong um, part of the work, including looking at I guess the intersections between feminism, phobia, racism discrimination based on gender, age and sexuality and really using that clinically to help pull apart some of these ideas of like why is how we look so important in the society that we live in.
1: And you've been making some excellent contributions to the field, Fran, and I knew it would come out of an altruistic place that you ended up (laughs) there. Um, Can you tell us a bit about what you found might be helpful for people with BDD?
5: Yeah, so I guess there is kind of fairly limited research generally in terms of treatment options. Um, So our research was really focused mostly on looking at the perceptual side of things, so You know, given the research that exists, there is quite a strong evidence base showing that there are differences in how people with BDD perceive themselves, um, particularly compared to how other people might see them. So there's that real disconnect between the kind of subjective and objective view of oneself. So my research was mostly focused on exploring these different levels of visual processing and whether we could use that to develop a visual training program. And so while this was kind of a small pilot study, we found that there were some promising results in terms of feasibility and potential efficacy, which supports us kind of moving forward to continue to modify and develop this program. And I guess we really went down this path because... You know, many of the more traditional psychotherapies for body dysmorphic disorder don't really focus on this aspect of perception, um, but more around thoughts and behaviours and feelings. So I think this is quite an important part of the work that has been missing so far.
1: I agree. It's a huge contribution, Fran. And I was just wondering if you might be able to tell us really briefly what it might be like for someone to, to be involved in one of the programs you suggest. What would it look like for them?
5: Yeah, sure. So, the program that we trialed um, and are hoping to continue in the future involved different levels of visual training. So, there were some sort of brain training games, um, you know, I guess like that more kind of typical cognitive remediation where you train people to look at things in a bit of a different way and to be using those different parts of their visual brain. And so, we looked at kind of more basic visual processing as well as uh, processing and responding to different faces. And then the final level was more around mirror perception, so really targeting and retraining people in ways of how to look at themselves in a way that is not so critical or hostile.
1: This sounds so necessary in the time of COVID-19, Fran, where we're possibly going to be looking in mirrors and taking more selfies, as you said before. Where should people go if they feel like they're experiencing these issues and need more support or would like more support?
5: Yeah, totally. Thank you. I will just give a bit of a plug to my place of work. Um, so clinically, I work as a psychologist at Mind Body Well, which is a private practice in Melbourne. And we mostly see people with concerns around body image, eating including eating disorders and body dysmorphic disorder and just to say that we are offering online services at the moment so help really is available and I would really encourage people to reach out if they are struggling within you know this really strange and uncertain time Um, in terms of my work with you as well Dr G-Spot I guess just to (laughs) say that
1: thank you (laughs) of
5: course Um, so we are in the process of developing a body image chatbot which again seems very timely given COVID-19 so that we can really try and provide that in the moment support for people with these body image concerns but yes just to look out for that which we will be uh, piloting later on in the year.
1: I I cannot wait Fran and I'm going to work very hard after this show on the chatbot believe me. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us Fran it's been a delight and all the very best for your clinical and research work
5: thank you and thank you so much for having me (laughs) no
1: issues and I just wanted to add there uh, there's also the butterfly helpline if people are concerned about body image eating disorder or body dysmorphic disorder uh, issues and that number is one 4673 six seven three that 's one 4673 well it 's nearly time to wrap up here and just in time to say thank you to the delightful panel beater um, for keeping this whole show on the road i 'm very very grateful to him. I've been Dr. G-Spot. Uh, thank you so much for listening. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We're all over social media. And you can also listen anytime with the Triple R Radio On Demand. And you can always download this podcast so you can listen to us over and over and over again because the show has really been that good, <laughs> at least in my humble opinion.
0: Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and wellbeing, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.